Let us begin with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the early warning systems which was able to warn us of the coming snowstorm. And as we are unable to gather to worship for you on Ash Wednesday, we pray that you bless the words of our sermon, that we may feel prepared to focus on your cross and, and to rejoice in Easter when we rejoice that our sins are forgiven and the tomb is empty. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Our text for our sermon is the Gospel History According to the Apostle Matthew, as recorded in chapter 20, verses 17 through 20. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, Look, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and experts in the law, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock, flog, and crucify him. On the third day he will be raised. This is the word of our Lord. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we already prayed about, it's Ash Wednesday where we begin the solemn journey to the cross during our midweek sermons and our midweek lessons. But thanks to the snowstorm, we're not having worship tonight, either in Casper or in Buffalo. Now, Ash Wednesday prepares us because in the medieval church, early medieval church, when they invented the custom that gave the name Ash Wednesday, it was that they put the ashes on the people's foreheads to remind them that because of our sin, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, we deserve death. But also that cross was a reminder, yet Christ paid for that. And so really Ash Wednesday begins a solemn journey that does not culminate on Good Friday when Christ is placed on the cross and then placed in the tomb. It culminates on Easter when the tomb is empty and the people hear the good news. Christ is risen, your sins are paid for in full. And so our theme for our sermon today is as we begin Christ's solemn journey to the cross. We have two parts that will complete that sentence. Now, it's interesting to me to think that Jesus spoke the words of our sermon text a month to a month and a half prior to his being betrayed and arrested and crucified. It's interesting to me that four chapters before in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew already tells us that Jesus had begun telling the disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem and die for their sins. And yet, isn't it amazing to think that the disciples, when they see Jesus arrested and when they see him on the cross, how they fall apart. They completely forgot the words that he stated over and over again. Interestingly enough, if we look to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, even 700 years before Christ warned the disciples and told them he was going to Jerusalem to die, if we look at what will be our sermon series during this Lent at Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13 through 53, verse 12, as we get a picture of Christ on the cross as if Isaiah were already there. 700 years before Christ takes on human flesh. Well, that tells us something. God had warned the disciples in advance, at least a month, if not months in advance, and told them on more than one occasion it was coming, but he even had it prophesied through prophets like Isaiah 700 years earlier. And let's not forget Psalm 22, uh, which was written by King David, gives us a, a more graphic picture of the agony Christ suffers on the cross than even the gospel chroniclers like Matthew and Mark and Luke and John does. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, the whole entire point of this is it shouldn't have come as a surprise to the disciples when it happened. They had been warned. 
And it's a reminder for us because Jesus warns us, you're going to struggle with your sinful nature. The world is going to hate you. You are going to fall into sin. In fact, I often uh, talk about the Apostle Peter, and I don't hold him out because I think I'm better than him at all. In fact, I often stand in wonder at the gifts that the Apostle Peter had. But Peter's sins are constantly mentioned. When I point them out, I don't point them out saying, I'm better than Peter. Not at all. I point them out to show something spectacular. Even the apostles could not keep it together, if you will. They were not perfectly holy. And it shows that the Bible is, is truth because usually when you have cults, they turn around and put the best construction on their leaders and hide their sins and their mistakes and things like that. The Bible lays out guys like Peter and, and, and Paul and, and, and the other disciples and, and even shows their flaws. Why? Because they needed a savior. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise to us when we stumble and fall into sin. doesn't give us the opportunity to excuse it away. We'll get into that here in a minute. And it warns us of other things. So as example, as Jesus warns us of the bridesmaids who did not have enough oil, we do not know the day that Christ is coming. So when Christ does come, it should not be a surprise to us. We should be prepared, keeping the oil of our faith well uh, full by staying in the Word. And the other thing is, Christ warned the disciples in advance, the prophets prophesied about this in advance, to reaffirm our faith. And it does the same for us. For example, when we know uh, from the book of Revelation that there'll be wars, rumors of wars, the church will be persecuted, there's going to be lots of times where it looks like the church is just going to be de decimated, but Christ has already won the victory, and when he returns, all will be triumphant. So all these things are, are told to us in advance to reaffirm our faith, and that's as we begin that solemn journey to the cross on Ash Wednesday, we keep before our eyes the fact that we know that tomb is going to be empty. So as we begin Christ's solemn journey to the cross, remember why God tells us in advance. All the things in Scripture he does, but especially using the example of Christ warning the disciples in advance that he's going to Jerusalem to die for our sins. So it doesn't come as a surprise, and then it reaffirms our faith. So as we begin the Christ's solemn journey to the cross, remember why God tells us in advance. Now, Luke adds something to the account when he reports on this. We're told in Luke chapter 18, verse 34 of the disciples, they did not understand any of these things. What he said was hidden from them, and they did not understand what was said. Why didn't they understand that? And who hid it from them? God does not make us sin. But God knows all things, and he knows the sins we're going to commit. So, for example, knowing Judas would have it in his heart to betray him, God planned to use that and even had it prophesied in advance to uh, reaffirm and strengthen people's faith when afterwards they could look back and say, wow, God told us this was going to happen through the prophet Jeremiah in, in, in Psalm 22. So the disciples, as I already mentioned, had a sinful nature like you and I do. And why were they unable to understand this? I don't think it's that God said, I'm going to make good and sure that you don't understand this. It seems that God knew their sinful nature didn't want them to properly understand it, and he did not intervene in this case, keeping them from understanding it. And I think we're given a major key as to what exactly their sinful nature was doing that kept them from understanding it. And that's recorded in Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Uh, this is after Jesus' resurrection and just before his ascension. We're told, 
After he had suffered, he presented himself alive to the apostles with many convincing proofs. He appeared to them over a period of forty days and told them things about the kingdom of God. Once, when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for what the Father promised, which you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they got together with him, they asked, Lord, is this the time when you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And therein is the thing that was hiding from them what was really going on. They were focused on an earthly political kingdom. When Jesus fed the 5,000, we're told pretty much in all of John chapter 6, which is the famous Bread of Life discourse, that many of those people the next day tried to force Jesus to be their king because they didn't want to have to work. They didn't want the struggles of this life. They wanted Jesus to make miracle bread appear for them every day, and they were going to force him to be king. Well, the disciples, they just kept thinking of an earthly political kingdom. We chase away the Romans, make them the kingdom that rules the world so that all the money comes pouring in and they could be nobility and, and have things pretty easy. They had in mind a glorious kingdom, but it was according to worldly glory. And this serves as a reminder for us. There are many charlatan preachers that are hucksters of what we call prosperity theology or the theology of glory. And behind that is the idea that if you worship Jesus and if you follow pagan concepts like the New Age idea of the law of attraction, thinking positively, and you do the right stuff, then God's going to make you healthy, wealthy in this life. And they completely ignore some pretty solid words of Jesus where Jesus tells us that if you're going to follow him, you're going to have to pick up a cross. Now, it's, those aren't crosses where we intentionally put ourselves in harm's way. It's the world is going to resent you for being a Christian, uh, for, for the holiness of God and glory shining through, even though that's God's love shining through. And you're going to have hardships uh, above and beyond just the world resenting you being a Christian. And so even some Christians who mean well and aren't just trying to line their own pockets, which happens a lot with prosperity theology hucksters, Lots of times you'll find Christians thinking that's what it's about. That, you know, okay, I, I've got a, I got a spiritual blessing, and if I cling to it right, then I'm going to have this major worldly blessing. But Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, when he talks about, don't worry, this is all part of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. So the apostles, they were passing through this filter of a political worldly kingdom, and they had worldly things in mind, whereas the truth of the matter is, we, when we, our new person does the thinking, we have in mind Christ's righteousness credited to us, the forgiveness of sins, being God's child, and realizing, if I starve to death today, if I trust in Christ, I'm going to heaven. I'm perfectly happy. That doesn't mean I force myself to starve to death. And otherwise, God's going to keep me alive until the day he calls to heaven. So I'll focus on Christ's righteousness. I'll be a good steward of what he provides, and the Lord will provide those things. So one of the things is, uh, as we keep a, a view towards Christ's cross is, the disciples at this time had the wrong end goal in mind. They were thinking of a political worldly kingdom. People would say, well, because Jesus is the Messiah, there'd be some spirituality to it. But it would be of this world, not of his true kingdom, which is his rule in our hearts. Well, there's other ways in which we, for getting the point of the cross, uh, we can turn around and actually focus on the cross in a wrong way. 
the disciples here didn't even want to focus on a cross. They wanted to focus on a worldly political kingdom and the things of this world. But think about the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought they were saved by their external actions, and that often made them hypocrites, pointing out somebody else's sin as if because they sin worse than I, then I'm better than them. You and I both have sins that we struggle with. So we can have our eyes on the cross and become very pharisaical about it, turning that cross into a guilt trip. Jesus went all the way to the cross for you, and look at all the pain and suffering he went through. Don't you think the least you could do is throw an extra $10 bill in the offering plate? Jesus went all the way to the cross for you, and look at all the suffering and pain he did. Don't you think the least you could do is use a few less curse words, or none at all? We can turn that cross into a guilt trip. Interesting, when Jesus comes out of Jerusalem carrying the cross, he tells those women, weep not for me. See, the truth of the matter is, is the cross is where Jesus pays for our sins because we cannot help but to sin. So we have to be careful not to turn that cross where Christ fulfills the law for us into a law that we must fulfill or that we become Pharisees, uh, hypocrites, pointing out other people's sins as if somehow uh, because Christ died for me and I know it, now I'm better than you because I don't struggle with your sins. We all have sins in which our sinful nature is especially weak. So keep a proper view of the point of Christ's cross, because our sinful nature can turn that cross into guilt trips and what we call self-righteousness, where you think, Christ made it possible now for me to keep the law, therefore I can, I'll, I'll earn my own salvation by seeing the example Christ set. That's all wrong. Christ went to the cross to take the punishment your and my sins deserve and make us God's children. Now, we can also turn around and focus on the cross in the wrong way, because our sinful nature can turn the cross into an excuse to sin. Turn around and say, Pastor, in catechism when I had him or in his sermons has warned me over and over again, here's a sin that our sinful nature is really good at embracing, especially encouraged by our culture today. And I've been warned, he's even told me he's warning me, made it very solemn, very clear over and over again, but this is, this is the sin I want to commit and society's helping encourage me. And oh, Mm, and I know Jesus will forgive me. The $20 theological term that, that theologians use for this is antinomianism. It's the idea that because Christ fulfilled the law for us, we no longer even have to use the law as a guide. We can excuse away our sin saying, we live in grace. And boy, will our sinful nature do that. It'll focus on the cross and say, my sins are paid for in full. Don't tell me it's a sin anymore. This is what I want to do. And if God loves me, God will accept me for who I am. And no, it's not what happens. God loves you, so he took the punishment for you. And he makes you somebody lovable by putting the new person in your heart, the new person that is engrafted to Christ, the new person that is clean, because Christ died on that cross for us. And so, as we begin Christ's solemn journey to the cross, keep a proper view of the point of the cross. Our sinful nature uh, can focus on earthly needs and blinds us to our spiritual needs. Our sinful nature can turn the cross into guilt trips and self-righteousness. Our sinful nature can turn the cross into an excuse to sin. In those three broad categories, in every one of them, if I have not hit on sins that you struggle with, then you're fooling only yourself. Because I can tell you, every human being does sins in one of those three categories pretty regularly. So do we despair? Is Ash Wednesday a guilt trip where some people put ashes on their forehead as they did in the early medieval church when they began it, saying, look at you, you sinner. 
not at all. Those ashes were made in the form of a cross to remind us of what Isaiah was prophesying in 53, that our sins were put on him. You and I cannot help but to sin. We don't use that as an excuse to sin, but that sinful nature, just as wonderful apostles like Peter stumbled, our sinful nature is going to do the same. It's why we need a Savior. And so we keep our eyes on that cross because Christ's cross is what saves us. Not our hypocrisy, not our self-righteous trip, not how many offerings we give or how hard we even struggle against our sin. It's Christ's cross that saves us. We are sinners. If we could save ourselves, Christ would not have gone through that agony of being abandoned by God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He would not have been abandoned by God. And there's a concept that can completely blow your mind even thinking about God the Son being abandoned by God. So, Christ's cross is to save us because we are sinners. And we keep our eye on the cross saying, there, there my sins are paid for and that tomb is empty. That's my receipt that it's paid for in full. And so as we begin Christ's solemn journey to the cross during this Lent season on Ash Wednesday, remember why God tells us in advance. It shouldn't come as a surprise for us that Christ dies for our sins, that we're sinners who need a Savior. And it also should reaffirm our faith as God prophesied this so many times in advance. And also keep a proper view of the point of Christ's cross. Our sinful nature focuses on earthly needs and blinds us to our spiritual needs. Our sinful nature can turn the cross into guilt trips and self-righteousness. Our sinful nature can turn the cross into an excuse to sin. And so we keep our eyes on that cross because Christ's cross saves us. We are sinners. We desperately need Christ on the cross and we desperately need Christ off the cross. And we rejoice in that empty tomb. Amen. Let us conclude with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we begin the solemn journey to Christ's cross and to the empty tomb on Easter during this Lent season, we thank you that even though we're unable to gather, the technology has preserved us, that we were able to prepare for this bad weather, and we thank you that through that same technology we can post an encouraging devotion to each other. We pray that you keep our eyes focused on why you told us in advance that our Savior was coming and that he would be crucified, and we pray that you keep our eyes focused on that empty tomb. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.